to be Saturday? What day is it today? Wednesday. Exactly. Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, I'm Falcon Screen, and we are joined by Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Hey, guys. And Sydney Film Festival director Nashan Moodley. Nashan, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure to be back. Thanks for having me. So the Sydney Film Festival, it kicks off, well, it started right now. It runs from today, Wednesday night, through till Sunday, the 16th of June. It's venues all around the city. Ratne Rule will be joining us later in the program and on the podcast to talk about some of the films we've seen and some of the films that you should be catching over the course of the next couple of weeks. But first, we want to hear directly from Nashan. It is the 66th Annual Film Festival. Are you excited? It's, all, it's, final, it's been months, a year of preparation. It's finally here. I'm excited. I'm also always a bit anxious at this point, but uh, I think that's that's normal. We have uh, so many films, so many filmmakers coming to Sydney. Uh, there's logistically there. It's of course an enormous task uh, adding films as we did just in the last days brings with it its own logistical challenges because you actually physically have to get the copy of that film to to play. So. Everything's on track, um, and I think it's going to be a great festival. The, the reaction to the program has been amazing, and it really feels that lots of people are talking about the festival and are going to be at the festival. So It does seem yeah. that things have been selling a lot faster than last year. Many sessions are already selling fast, and a few are sold out already. That's right. That's right. So we're very happy about that. Mm. So um, as you just mentioned before, the big news of the day, which would be the new announcements added, many of which are from the Cannes Film Festival. Why is it such a priority for Sydney Film Festival to add these additional films to the program? Because it seems to happen every year. Well, because we can. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> because, we, you know, we, we, we of course, in, in terms of the timing of the festival, it's impossible. It should be impossible for us to have any films from Cannes. But we manage each year to secure a few films from Cannes um, in time for our, our program main program announcement, which happens early in May. But of course, once Cannes starts, we have sometimes the opportunity to see other films. Uh, I think filmmakers and film companies around the world see the value of having the Australian premiere of the film at the Sydney Film Festival. So once the program is announced, we actually nowadays just start looking at more films. And uh, it makes it tough because I was watching films on Saturday and mm. writing notes on Saturday. So it's quite tight. But we, we're we really happy to, to present these films. People seem to look forward to them a lot. and um, There is that sense of exclusivity of, haha, we got this before Melbourne. Well, I think uh, more than that, I think it's uh, the first... In in most of these cases, it's the first time members of the public can see the films anywhere in the world. Mm. It's not not just in Australia, but anywhere in the world, because Cannes, of course, is primarily for film professionals. Mm. And uh, with many of these films, it will be the first screening to a public audience. So I think that's quite exciting, and we're quite privileged here in Sydney to be able to to see these films that early. Mm. Now we've spoken, we will speak in a moment about some of the late announcements. However, since we last spoke, there has been the awardees, the prize giving at Cannes, and one of the films has taken out the biggest prize of all, which will be screening on the, not the set of that, but the next set of the night. What is, what is that film and what does that mean for Sydney Film Festival? Well, it's a fantastic film called Parasite by Bong Joon-ho, uh, one of my favourite directors, and uh, he's been at the festival before with Okja, and of course we've shown many of his films over the years and we're just so delighted to have the film I, I 
um, I was in Korea in October last year and, and met with uh, director Bong. And we started speaking about the film. And I said, you know, I'd really love to have it in Sydney if it could all work out. And he said, I'd love that too, because he had a great time and a great screening with Okja. And that's how we managed to get the film with, with the kind help of um, Madman Entertainment, who, who uh, owned the film for Australia, and with CJ Entertainment, who uh, um, are the world sales agent of the film. But with Bong's help, we, we managed to secure the film. And I... It's fantastic that I won the Palm Door because it's an incredible film. And it's going to be, I think, two incredible packed out screenings. I think when one screening. Out already. Yeah, and, and Sunday, maybe not the Saturday yet. It's very close. I think if you don't have tickets now's the yeah, time by to now. Yeah, I've got mine. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a lot of the Khan films from the initial lineup were playing in the official competition with, uh, and I would say a lot of them are probably some of the biggest ticket films of Khan between The Parasite, uh, the El Motivar film, Pain and Glory, and Baccarat. Um, yeah, was there a bit of a shift in terms of how the official selection was selected this year to be further towards maybe more well-known brand name auteurs because I think last year to me it seemed very much focused in favor of new talents look I think it's it's a combination this year we don't start by saying oh let's have more known names in the competition that's not how it works we see the films and think okay what deserves to be in the competition and of course if they're great films by great filmmakers who are known then that's tremendous that's great it uh, um, it helps the profile of the competition but I think you'll see in the competition there are also many first-time filmmakers mm. and uh, filmmakers who are largely unknown in Australia so uh, for me that balance really works I think uh, I always would love for people to see all 12 films in the competition and to have that range of seeing someone you know make a film for virtually no money um, in Macedonia Mm. and then see Bong Joon-ho, one of the most commercially successful filmmakers in the world, uh, in that same space, in alongside each other, I think is is really interesting for the viewer. Mm. On that note, I think the film you're referring to is God Exists, her name is Petrania. We actually caught a screening. We, we have seen the film. We look, I know it will be screening shortly for City Film Festival audiences. It obviously is a very distinct film from the other ones that have screened at the festival, and certainly I think the first Macedonian film that have screened in, in the City Film Festival. What was the thinking behind including this film in the program and in the official competition? It's not the first film from Macedonia to screen at the festival because we showed uh, Tiona's previous film right. a few years ago. Um, look, I just think the film's great. I absolutely love the film. I, I think it's uh, a very timely film. I think the performance is fantastic. I think the way the film um, really skewers hypocrisy and uh, a society reluctant to change is is fantastically well done I'm I'm a big fan of the film so that's why it's in the competition and in the festival fair enough fair enough and in terms of the late announcements we should get onto that is the big news of the week you have a number of prominent ones including the best screenplay winner at Cannes and the Uncertain Regard winner and could you tell us about some of the main ones that you have announced just in the past few days? Look, I think it's a lineup of great films. We're really very happy to have uh, the win of the Best Screenplay Prize, which was uh, Celine Sharma's uh, wonderful film, uh, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. 
and uh, she's a fantastic filmmaker I think a great director but also a great writer um, the last film of hers that she wrote that we had was uh, My Life as a Zucchini uh, which I think is just a marvellous marvellous animated film and yeah we're delighted to have it I think this is a, a, a departure for her it's a, a period drama it's very elaborate and very big in a sense but I think she handles it just perfectly and they're great performances it's this wonderful story of desire and, and a quest for freedom mm. and um, again I think the the winner of the Uncertain Regard Prize um, The Invisible Life of Eurydice Guzmão by the great uh, Brazilian filmmaker uh, Karim Enuz is uh, also a film about freedom about women struggling to to break free of these societal conventions and in, in that case it's about two sisters who are forcibly separated um they're they're very close one is 18 and one is 20 i think around those ages and um because of their father they're they're separated and and we follow them for decades i think the best part of five or six decades um to see if they'll ever they never give up hope on f- reuniting with the other um it's a, a melodrama uh, very, very beautiful. Uh, I think just a, a really immersive, epic experience. And uh, yeah, you're, you're really selling it. I was struggling to work it onto my schedule, but I think I'll have to. Look, it's it's really fantastic. Did you see his previous film that we had at the festival? Uh, his previous feature film, which is called Prior de Futuro. I missed it. Let it's a tremendous it. film. Yeah, it's it's a great film, and uh, yeah, he does things in a very particular style. It's really. Um, it's really full on, you know, visually and in terms of the sound, and mm. it, it really it's lush, and um, I think it's it's just great. Uh, one thing that I've I've really thought about a lot is that this year is an amazing year for Brazilian films at the festival. Yeah, I was just thinking that, hearing what you were saying. Yeah, and and I mean, even before we added the Invisible Life of uh, Eurydice Guzmão, we had Bacurau, uh, Divine Love, Marighella. Um, there's a fantastic documentary, The Edge of Democracy. Uh, there's uh, the animation, uh, Tito and the Birds. And all these are extremely political films. And even if, they're, even if they're not very obviously about what's happening in Brazil right at this moment, they're extremely political films. And I think it's fantastic. I think it's an incredible year for Brazilian cinema. And it's wonderful that we have all these films here. It's funny, before you said that, I was just thinking that the Brazilian films tend to um, exemplify what I see as two trends looking over the program. One is, as you were saying, very political cinema, and the other is bringing in genre elements into the art house and sort of hybrid genre. Absolutely. Yeah. um, I wonder, um, to go on a, a bit of a tangent about the direction of cinema, it seems like we're going into a very political age and to some extent cinema might be being marginalized at the moment. So I'm not sure if this is so much of a question as throwing it out there as an observation, but it seems like filmmakers are struggling with do we seek to present the real more or do we go further into the world of movies or do more movie-like elements represent a sort of heightened political reality? As in the case yeah. maybe of Baccarat? That's- I, I think that's a good point. I think I think what, what we're seeing is that in some very prominent cases, I think Baccarat, uh, Parasite, uh, for instance, we're seeing the combination of the two, really depicting this reality, mm-hmm. uh, the real world, and then going 
into very much sort of movie mythology or or, or genre stylings mm-hmm. to in in quite an extreme way in those two cases about Baccarat and Parasite um to show the possibility of an explosion you know a, a possible explosion mm. um because both films depict a sort of injustice um in in the case of Baccarat it's, it's very obvious in 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 the case of Parasite it's it's something that we're perhaps more accustomed to and that's just a uh, income inequality and um uh, but when you when you really explore those notions and and feel free to to take them quite far um i think it makes a very potent point mm. it struck me as interesting that there's such prominence not just in brazilian features but in brazilian political films this year and i noticed we also talked in the, about um a Macedonian film just recently, and there's been huge upheavals in that region recently too. Um, I'm not sure if that's coincidence or it could be very deliberate, but are there other regions in the world? I mean, certainly there are a multitude of countries and cultures that are reflected throughout the films. We feel there may be a bit of a resurgence in cinema, political otherwise, reflected in the program. Uh, yeah, look, I mean, I think it's it, it changes from year to year. And while our selection is very big, it's in relation to what's being made, not that big, right? So it's always difficult to identify broad trends in what's happening in particular parts of the world through what is a vast selection for this festival, but in reality, a tiny proportion of what's being made each year. Um, Certainly, I think Latin America has been very interesting this year and, and last year as well, where we have far more films from Latin America than we, we'd we usually have. Um, but things can change very quickly. Uh, you know, I think uh, last year we had several Indian films, this year not so many. Mm-hmm. Um, people respond to political situations in their countries, but sometimes that takes time. Um, I think you'll, you'll find uh, many more interesting Indian films, for instance, in, in the yes. next few years. So it it you know from from can Thierry Formosa that they they'd seen lots of very interesting African films African cinemas um, uh, really doesn't have that much representation in international film festivals so I'm hoping that we'll see many more films from Africa in in the coming years it 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 really changes very much from year to year. Mm. Certainly, the two most interesting premises I've seen, one or two, two of the most interesting premises I've seen are African films. One is from um, Akasha, the, uh, I think it's the Sudanese film, and the other was just announced the other night, which was the Moroccan film, which uh, was played at the Cannes Critic Week. That's right. Uh, the Unknown Saint is the first film from Morocco. Really, f- very whimsically funny film. And uh, first film, I think it's very cleverly done. It's about a, a, a bank robber who is being chased by police with the stash of money that he has. He kind of fashions a rudimentary grave, is very quickly arrested by the cops and then sent to prison. When he returns from prison years later to retrieve his money, he finds that that grave has been identified as the grave. It's a fake grave, remember? That grave has been identified as the grave of an unknown saint and people have built a mausoleum around it and a, <laughs> and a village has been set up nearby for pilgrims. And 
uh, yeah, it's a very clever film that looks at superstition and and religious belief and grief. And uh, it, I think what's wonderful about it, it really sets up this village of fascinating characters. And um, uh, our protagonist has to kind of integrate himself into that village to try to get his cash back. Right. It's like Blue Streak, just much better. <laughs> Speaking as we were about the political bent of a lot of the films in competition and a lot of the um, trends in cinema to go in a more political direction, what kind of um, political bent, if any, does the festival take on in terms of its curatorial choices? Or is that something that you find yourself having to think about in terms of what films you program? If it's, this is making the festival into more of a political event. Look, I think the festival has always had lots of political films, I think probably from its very beginnings. And I think you're going to find in this area of cinema that that filmmakers from all over the world are going to be exploring political issues, um, often through the impact on the personal. I think that's that's something that's that's common. in, and and this year, it's, I think it's particularly strong. This idea of these very personal stories, uh, and and you look at how individuals and families are impacted by political decisions. Does the festival have a political bent, or a particular curatorial bent in terms of politics? I think the festival is quite exclusive uh, quite quite inclusive in in the sense that of course we show films from all these countries um, and that in itself argues for the commonality of peoples you know that that we're not all so different actually mm. that our concerns are the same that though we may have very different circumstances in the film films depict people in very different circumstances that ultimately people have similar desires and and needs and and maybe what that that leads to ultimately is we understand that people just want to live in dignity and if that's a political idea and if that's a political bent then i'd say that's our political bent that we we try to have films that make the argument that people should live in dignity and that other people and politicians should do whatever they can to to help that happen. Mm. It's interesting. Um, we watched a film that was not a political film that is screening at the festival, The Best of Dorian B, which is, I think, very much along those lines and on those things, but certainly not yeah, um, political I, in any sense. I very much like that, um, the humanistic side to that answer, because that's, that's the feeling I tend to come away from one of these all wide-ranging film festivals with... Know, the the dignity of people and and um, the importance of a fair life for a multitude of people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Now, turning to another element of the film program, uh, my favorite strand every year is the Freak Me Out strand. But separate to that, I noticed this year there is a very strong emphasis on genre filmmaking within the broader programming, uh, whether it be The Dead Don't Die, The Nightingale, and Parasite, as we discussed. I'm curious. And Baccarat. And Baccarat, yes. Yeah. I'm curious as to what extent this is deliberate and broadly to what extent you see the Sydney Film Festival as focusing on genre filmmaking as opposed to um, some of the more broad filmmaking trends that we've discussed throughout this interview. Look, I, I don't think we ever we ever consider such a sharp distinction. We, we, we never feel, well, let's put all the genre films in, in this section or, or that section. It's not how we, 
we work. I think we've, we're we're quite open to all kinds of films. Um, you're right in that perhaps this year in, in quite prominent positions, there are films that more explicitly have genre elements. Um, but Bong Joon-ho, for instance, you'd say the vast majority of his films do. Um, and, you know, he's a filmmaker who we're always going to play if we have the opportunity to. Uh, Clever Mendoza Filio um, loves genre films. He really does. Uh, he loves Wake and Fright, for instance. So I, it didn't come as a complete shock to me that he took his new film in, in such a sharp direction. I, I was surprised when I saw it. I thought, what is he doing? My God, it's quite crazy. But I, I when I thought about it afterwards, I thought, oh, it's not that's surprising. He uh, is someone who, right from the start, has been about using cinema in a fairly maximalist way. Absolutely. Absolutely. And here he really goes for it. So we, we don't make that strict distinction. Uh, it's not it's not intentional that, that we say, well, let's get in more films with uh, of this type into the into the program. Um, but it's it's never been the case that we're resistant uh, either. Right. I think we'll have to wrap up shortly, but I guess uh, is there any closing comments you'd like to make or any films you'd like to stir someone, you know, point someone in the direction of? You might not say otherwise. Uh, look, I'd, I'd say, you know, watch the films in the competition. I think it's it's a great year for the competition. It's it's really varied. I think the Australian films in the competition are fantastic. Um, two really extremely talented and interesting filmmakers making very different films. Mary Folks with uh, Judy and Punch and uh, Ben Lawrence with Hearts and Bones, uh, but I think two extraordinary films. I think all the films of the late announce are, are quite wonderful. Um, very Some very unusual films. Um, usually all the late announce films are from Cannes, but this year we've, we've got a film called Booksmart, um, which is... Perhaps some people say it's an unusual pick for the festival, but I think it's a tremendous film. It's really extremely funny and very smart. Um, uh, and I think just a joyous film. Uh, we have a film, uh, Official Secrets, that's a, a political thriller with Kira Knightley that didn't come from Cannes, uh, but again, we're delighted to present it at the festival. So I'd say check out the competition, check out the late announced films. There's a lot to see um, at the festival. But I think people are going to have a great time. And if we want to see it, how do we get there? Where do we go? The best way is to go to our website, sff.org.au, and there you can buy single tickets, but it's even better to buy flexi passes in 10s, yep. 20s, or 30s. You'll need them, and you save money, and you can share them with your friends. So We've got ours. It's worth it. <laughs> yeah, Please do. Nashan, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. Thank you. And Thanks for having me. And looking forward to seeing so many, so many films in the next two the, As the greatest marathon you don't have to train for, as it says on the back of the <laughs> program. Thank you. Thank you. We're back with Virat Nehru talking all things Sydney Film Festival right after this. Stay tuned. Join me on Saturdays from 8pm for Keeping Score. My name is Leah, and each week we'll unravel the soundtracks and musical scores from some of our favourite movies. The soundtrack to your Saturday night. Keeping score on 2SCR 107.3. Welcome back to Film Fight Club. Thank you, Nishen, for joining us. And we have now someone else in the studio. We have freelance writer and critic for Nehru. Virat. Hey guys, uh, where have you been? 
We've, we've been interviewing Sydney Film Festival director Nishan Moodley. Yeah. Oh. oh. Okay. Pity you couldn't be there to ask about mm-hmm. Indian cinema, but <laughs> which he did address. Finally, he did address knowing that your spirit was in the room with us. <laughs> so it was like, where's Farad? Who's just this big Farad-sized spot there? It's okay. I'm, I'm glad that he understands that I was missed. So we will be having over the course of the next few weeks a lot, a lot, a lot of movies and a lot of Sydney Film We're Festival coverage. Going to see as many films as possible and try to review uh, all the ones worth caring about. Yeah, the movie. That's our stated mission. Um, <laughs> it's, I actually have never heard it subscribe, uh, said so succinctly. It's, it's pretty much what it is. Yeah, so yeah. we'll be coming at you twice a week. In addition to this Wednesday 7.30 episode, we'll also be on Sundays for an hour from 12 till 1. And the first of those episodes will be joined by critics from around Sydney and around the country. Film and Revolt will be joining us, the Film and Revolt crew, with a special, for a special focus on youth cinema and the youth strand at the festival. And Stephen Hill yeah. from 2SER will be joining us. Thank God it's just not us. And we will be talking, because we'll be seeing a lot of the time and then reviewing films that will be screening over the next few days and have just screened. And we're going to be going to a lot more detail on the podcast, but for the next few minutes, well, the last few minutes we have you, we just want to give a quick minute rundown each of the things we're really hyped for, the really, really excited for, and where you can pretty much catch us over the next 12 days. You'll know where we are. Virat, you want to start off? Yeah, well, because I've missed out on the sort of episode shenanigans before, so... I really thought the documentaries this year are really, really, really strong. The features, but yeah, the documentaries are like, yay! The features are like, so yeah, that's how I feel generally about the program. But that's kind of how I feel about, you know, the program every year. (laughs) (laughs) Life is a documentary. It's not a feature film. That is true. It's not exciting for my, at least my life isn't. It is kind of a slow-moving, minimalist, you know, Seminar Malik film. Well, anyway, what films, films are, are you seeing? Are... What movies are you watching? <laughs> it is my life, Glad. Your life could be different. Your life could be a hyper realistic noir. Are you describing Satan Tango? Speaking of Satan Tango, I'm really looking forward to seeing that on the Friday. That's basically my Friday. It's just, you know, eight hours of uh, just, you know, Hungarian miserabilism. Wow. Uh, what I, I actually wanted to be miserable about, uh, talking about miserableism, is is uh, The Brink. I wanted to hate it, and I actually ended up really, really loving it. Yeah, that's screening in the next few days. Yep, and this is the Steve Bannon doco. So, you know, everyone hates Steve Bannon, uh, or at least, you know, that's the reasonable thing to do. But if you're going to actually, you know, go watch a film about him, this is the most fascinating insight. And actually, I went completely, I will, you know, be honest and say that I was completely biased, in my opinion, before going to watch this movie, and then came out pleasantly surprised at how much I liked it. Okay. Doesn't Chris. happen. Yeah, um, I think Saturday is going to be huge. I'm really looking forward to of the, the Friday and Saturday premiering movies, you know, The Souvenir, Pain and Glory. Um, yeah, it's it's going to be big. The weekends in particular are big this year. I think there's a lot crammed in on Monday. High Life coming up? Yes, yeah, I've deliberately waited uh, and not seen anything. Uh, you know, what one's seen the movie at the movies at the cinema, the state theater and biggest screen possible. Robert Pattinson is now the new Batman, so you know, wanting him to you know space sex drama is going to be fascinating. He's All also DC fans will be there, right? He's also going to be in part two of the Souvenir before that comes out. So that is true. You've got to, if you're a Robert Pattinson fan, you've got to be at Sydney Film uh, Festival. Our Pats, that's the place to be. Yep, it's fascinating. This is, this this has gone in a strange direction. It has, but uh, what I'm looking forward to is the genre films. The as Nashin discussed. 
while there is the freak me out strand, I managed to catch a couple so far. Why don't you just die? And Daniel isn't real. Something Patrick Schwarzenegger among them will be in that program. However, genre has pervaded so many aspects of this festival. Parasite, Nightingale, The Dead Don't Die, On Dog, a Mongolian film, which I'm quite keen to catch. There are abundant joys for people who are happy to, whether it's the All Night Center Eleven or find that recurring wonderful festival crowd who are always at those sorts of screenings. It's a cool group. Do come along. That's what I'm quite keen for. Um, as Chris said, Pain and Glory is what I'm quite excited for. Uh, so the African films, uh, there's only a few this year, and they and particularly the one that was late announced, which I apologize for referring to Blue Streak earlier, that terrible 90s Martin Lawrence film. But it is essentially that plot, but on a I think much working on much many more levels. For people who are fans of music, we have a lot of music documentaries uh, screening this year, especially Miles Davis' Birth of Cool. If you like Miles, if you like Miles Davis' music, which uh, I do, I really love Miles Davis' music. This is apparently he's got a lot of archive footage. So First, yeah. one of the sessions. Also, well, Leonard Cohen documentary and Marianne. That's going to be fascinating. Everyone loves Leonard Cohen. That's already sold out apparently. So you know, quite a hot ticket. And the Rolling Thunder review, Scorsese on Martin Scorsese. Bible dealing. I think his name's in the title. If you're months. struggling to fit that in, I, w- I would wait if you have a Netflix subscription since that film will be coming to Netflix. Um, but we watch everything on the big screen, Chris. Well, there's one film that's screening at Netflix the following day, but anyhow, um, that is us. Stay tuned on the podcast. We'll have a lot more roundup of reviews and thoughts on some of the films screening in the next few days. Many, many, many. And uh, subscribe on iTunes and Spotify. Stay tuned for the Sonic Assassin. Uh, keep a lookout on Falcon Screen and the 2SCR page and on the airwaves for our interviews with directors and filmmakers. And yeah, um, just come find us at the hub. We'll be there when we're not in the movie. We're basically going to be spending our 12 days either glued to the screen or the seats at the State Theatre. This has been Glenn Falkenstein, Chris Evans, and Varat Nehru. Have a wonderful night. Thank you. The Shen Midley, the Sydney Film Festival, will be screening from the 5th to the 16th of June around Sydney. Enjoy movies. Have a wonderful night. Hang loose. And we're back on the Film Fight Club podcast. Yes, so that was... We've, we've had a chat with the Shen. We talked a bit about the broadly Sydney Film Festival, but we want to get into specific reviews. We'll be covering a bunch of films that will be screening from tonight, Wednesday the 5th of June, through to the weekend. And in our show on Sunday, we'll be covering films that have screened over the part, those past few days, but then going on into the rest of the festival. Yes, the, the nitty-gritty, the meat of the bone. The first film we want to discuss, it's actually the one of the previews we've all seen. It is the first one screening. It is screening tonight at Events in Ms. George Street and will be screening again on Friday night at the Ritz. That is The Wedding Guest, the new film, Michael Winterbottom film starring Dev Patel and Radhika Apta. It is a film about Dev Patel's character, Jay, who travels to Pakistan. He's a gunman, hitman for hire, and he is the titular uninvited when guest, we don't want to say too much about the plot of this film because we don't want to uh, uh, reveal too much. Having said that, uh, while there are many great films that you really should see at the Sydney Film Festival, this is not one of them. We probably <laughs> encourage you to give it a miss for any of the other great stuff playing. What did we think of it's, the wedding guest? It was so generic. It had, there's almost a clinical edge to the storytelling and the photography. That just was life sucking. Did you find that like that? You you never get to care about any of the characters, which matters because it. I think what he's going for is that there's a cold entry point to this film. You basically don't know what's going on. Um, Jeff Patel seems to be is up to something. We don't know what it is, and over the course of the film, his humanity is revealed. 
I, I think that's what they're going for. Yeah, I mean that Dave Patel, the supposed uh, you know hitman, the cold-blooded person, is the most human out of all the other people uh, in the film. Yeah, bloody, 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 bloody. Yeah, yeah. But um, it it ends in such a trite message. It ends with a hook on a relationship between characters we are supposed to care about and be invested in. But we do not care about the outcome of this because these are not endearing characters. They have no charisma or chemistry either individually or between them. He is Dow throughout the entire film. I understand it's by design, but it just means he's uncaptivating. And that meandering drive at the beginning, it's supposed to be intriguing. We don't learn anything. But it looks no like it, it, We learn it, nothing. It, it, it tells us nothing. It, it's, it looks like just a bunch of shots of cars driving in and out of a location. Like it just, it just has no... Uh, humanity to it the the way that the romantic angle creeps into this film is it just feels so rote like okay here we go then they're gonna fall in love because it's a man and a woman on a on a journey and that's how it works no it's it's dave patel of course they're gonna fall in love what else is he he's a very do? handsome man oh yeah sure um sure uh, but like honestly it's, it's a, like it's a very predictable kind of path that this film takes and while it but at the same time it's very simple as a story but at the same time it manages to be overly complicated when um there's it starts off as one kind of crime film there's a different kind of crime narrative that intersects around midway through and then it turns out that this is one of those heist slash i'm not sure quite how to put it but it just shoehorns a plot about jewels in yeah, no the, reason. And it's brought up by exposition. It's so clunky. It suddenly just and enters avoidable. into the film, this narrative. It starts out as it, this is something about arranged marriages in Pakistan. And then suddenly it's about like jewel. You know what it feels like? It feels like the Thieves? lesser John Grisham <laughs> novels were about a third of the way in. He does a 20-year flashback to something extraneous and largely relevant, which becomes relevant several chapters later. It was that reeks of writing you don't necessarily want in a great thriller. And it's certainly very apparent here. Well, let's let's address the elephant in the room, which is thank you guys. You guys must really love me because we begin our journey of the Sydney Film Festival with the Dave Patel movie. I mean, you guys must really, really, really love a lot, me. Lot of, a lot of Dev Patel hate going on here. No, no. I, I <laughs> Tell us how I did love the Dave journey Patel. of hating Dev Patel begin? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, just hate him so much that you call him Dave. <laughs> <laughs> I've been wondering about this the whole way through. I've been like, is this is the correct pronunciation actually like Dave, or is that? No, yeah, like is it is that how it should be pronounced? No, but there's no D sound in India, so it's it's oh. Dave. Dave Patel, yeah, yeah, but yeah, that's, 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 as in the D, the hard D sound is not there, so it's oh. it's it's a soft the like you roll your tongue. Oh. So it's like Dave, Dave Patel, Dave Patel, oh. Dave Patel. Okay, all right. Okay, no, thank you. No, no, but that, that's yeah. fine. I'm, I'm sure. I'm sure Dave but, but, would be okay. It doesn't. doesn't let, let's call him by his actual name. Let's do him that courtesy. Uh, yeah, but doing that doesn't improve his acting skills in this movie, at least. Unfortunately, I wish it did. But yeah, you know, I can be courteous about his actual heritage, and that's fine. But I hope it. I wish it actually improved his actual abilities in the movie, but it doesn't. And he really needs to stop acting in these white lens passion projects where he's somehow trapped in the subcontinent he just needs to get out of there and start acting in movies i don't know call his agent and tell him to do you know pick some better projects because he is actually better than this and i agree i you know so is radhika apte she's fantastic as an actress and i i thought she couldn't act in a bad movie but she's now done that so she also needs to change a bit of tack 
But, you know, everyone learns. And also Michael Winterbottom. He's a fantastic director. I didn't think... What is he doing? He's made some good ones. I really like 24-hour party people. Um, I like Tristram Chanji. Exactly. Um, So it feels like a, you know, coming together of really good talent. He's he's one of those directors who seem to be everywhere in the 20... In the 2000s, in that decade, he was just putting out a film all the time. This is a 2000s film. And one of the issues with that is that it has that... It reeks that issue that... Daredevil, the TV series does, where it's set in the modern day, but it's written by folks who only ever used to writing screenplays where you don't require certain levels of modern communication. Mobile phones. Mobile yeah. phones. It's, you could and just so it's kind a of- challenge for writers to create thriller plots because an entire genre has been based around, you know, people on the run, um, yeah. secrets and, and things being hidden. And there's so many of the of the devices we use to write that are just rendered um, unusable now. Obsolete, yeah. yeah um, no, Romeo and Juliet, but, but, as but, the classic but, example, will not be but also, made today in its traditional like, form. The way this is set up, it, it's supposed to be a much more, you know, uh, a thriller kind of narrative where, you know, it kind of feels like a James Hadley chase novel, except the pacing is completely off. You know, this is doing so much exposition, so much meandering, so many long shots of people just, you know, traveling. That I kind of felt like, you know... What, it's not really... Give, it, I didn't it feel, feel like, like I a, got to know the nothing. countryside or the... Yeah. I, I didn't no. get or the to know... There's no special awareness of where we was. I, but the different locales that we all travel through could be shot in such a way that it exemplifies something about yeah. the internal states of these characters. Exactly. But they weren't. It's just kind of clinically there. It's it's and you don't really get that much of a sense of the flavor of the locations. But it's I I think it's more than that. I think it's just bad plotting. Um, I don't I don't exactly agree with the point that it's a white lens passion project. I don't quite see evidence as such for that in the film. I just think it's a lousy one. I mean, the whole beginning of the film is based on him um, approaching this compound and establishing what is a very simple escape route for the act that is going to be undertaken but then they don't use that in order to create a sense of drama it's really frustrating the sequence where things escalate and it's all surrounding a character who's on the phone is supposed to be mysterious but is not mysterious at all he an incredibly violent act happens and there's no character basis for his motivation or the romance then ensues it's just trope after trope patched together oh the romance angle was atrocious i mean even though dave patel with his shirt off is you know, quite itself. Even when he's a, sad and looking more like selling point. I mean, we had that in Lion. There was a lot of brooding in Lion with Dave Patel with his shirt off. So we have already seen that and he can do it. So if you want Dave Patel with his shirt off in a better film, go see Lion. That's that's not really... Okay, I have other issues with that. Anyway, that's, this is going to be just a... Just okay, so we're not reviewing movies. the Dev Patel Festival. <laughs> no, we're reviewing... We're not. But the thing is, I just actually feel sad, and this is what really hurts me, is the fact that all these actors and all the talent involved in making this movie is so much better than this, right? And I just feel like, how did this happen? Because all these actors, not even Michael Winterbottom, like, you know, this... It didn't feel like it was set in Pakistan. It's just like, a like generic, said, you know? it's a very generic like, film. It's like from, it's so forgettable. Apart from, apart from the arranged marriage sort of, you know, uh, mise en scene and the wedding guest kind of situation, you kind of, this could have been set anywhere. And it felt like I was in the set of Homeland in a very kind of stereotypical yeah, it didn't, uh, sort of I agree, you don't really actually, get the sense of the locations. You know, and it's, exactly. a, it's a road movie. Until it they is. get to the beach, there's barely any photography that gets gives you an actual sense of where you are, yeah, or anything distinct about 
this landscape or this one. And something distinct yeah. about it. Again, they just throw what is supposed to be a huge emotional payoff, but there is no emotional Doesn't payoff because we don't context. care about any of these characters or what's going on. It is entirely forgettable. That is The Wedding Guest. It is screening um, tonight and then on the 7th, on the Friday at 6.30 p.m. at the Randwick Ritz. Doesn't matter when it's screening. Just don't watch it. The next film we're yeah. talking about is The Kleptocrats. Yeah, so this one is a documentary about the 1MDB scandal, and it's too long. Um, there, it, it's, a very, it's one of those very plain documentaries. There isn't that much to actually say about it. Um, the, the story of the actual scandal itself and how it came together is really interesting, but I would rather read a long-form um, article about this because beyond the base explaining of what happened you don't actually explore that scandal in that much depth. But there's a lot of um, there's a lot of cheap visuals. Uh, first of all, because of the connection of the Jolo, the financier of um, who was central to the one MDB scandal, um, financing through one of his companies, uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. We constantly use these Wolf of Wall Street graphic. Um, titles throughout the film and it gets a little bit distracting like we get it it's like the wolf of wall street um the same as uh there's the these crude detective kind of visuals like um showing you know the chart on the wall with photos and strings and pins on things you know you know the culprit you keep thinking of charlie day when you <laughs> yeah, it's like exactly that. like the things that Charlie Day would would put up on the wall, and it's always sunny. Um, it's just it's really undisciplined. It was definitely this runs about eighty something minutes, and it definitely feels like there's a fifty something minute cut that would work fine on TV somewhere. There's a section in this movie where they spend a while talking about some boat that's out at sea, um, because you can tell the filmmakers were hoping that Joe Lowe himself was on this boat, and they'd be able to film him being arrested. It turns out he's not on the boat. So why did we just spend like five minutes talking about a boat? It's just, um, it's just a, a very plain. Uh, there's n- documentary. There's nothing interesting about the way it's made. It's uh, just sort of like by the book TV talking heads documentary filmmaking, and um, yeah, as I said, it's a really interesting story. I just would not recommend this documentary on it. There could have been a very different movie involving boats and people on boats, but yeah, that's, that's not this movie, I guess. Well, um, um, I don't know what to say to that, but yeah. uh, but I guess I, I look, didn't think I it would, would go in that direction at all. I would recommend Titanic uh, from '97 <laughs> yeah. over this film. I, I'm going to recommend the now boat that, that rocked. It. The no, rocked 2006, also, also a 2006 film. film. Yeah, uh, you could also watch. Um, God, how many films uh, are there actually? Yeah, Jaws. Thunderbolt. Um, uh, what's the Poseidon Adventure? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, yeah, great movie. Is, um, yeah. Many more films set on boats that are much, yeah. much better. This um, film isn't even really set on a boat, Sam but Neil I'm enjoying Nicole Mr. Kidman, uh, Dead Calm. Dead Calm. Yeah, also... Oh, also really? Pirates of the Caribbean? Pirates, Pirates, Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, Pirates of the Caribbean. Well, um, oh, that had ships, though. There's a difference. I would actually say this is... Better than some of the Pirates of the Caribbean sequels. I have no trouble believing <laughs> there, that. There, there was only one. The first no, there one, were no, there were no Pirates of the Caribbean zero. sequels. No, no, I said there was only one good Pirates of the oh, Caribbean movie. Oh, yeah. Right? Yeah, the first oh, yeah. one, that's it, right? Are we agreeing on that? We are. Good, yes. and it's a ship movie, not a boat movie. That's the other point. 
so as so thank you for the distinction between ships and boats, Farad. That is um the Kleptocrats. It is screening tonight. Not enough the, ships, if you ask me. At the Opera Keys and one. on Sunday the sixteenth. What I love shipping. At two fifteen at Dendy Newtown. Next one we're talking about is a dog called Money, which is the PJ Harvey documentary about the uh, production of her twenty sixth album. 2016 album, excuse me, the Hope Six Demolition Project. It it shows her and her crew recording the album, folks from the public coming in to watch, interspliced with her traveling to places around the world, among them Kosovo, Afghanistan, and my old neighborhood in Washington, D.C., to get inspiration for her album. And it's very much interspliced that. I'm going to use a similar criticism to which Chris used a moment ago. This is not a feature film. This could have lasted 30 to 50 minutes. This is the sort of thing I'd expect to see um, 12 a.m., 1 a.m. on Rage as a short vignette. That's not a criticism. It's not pejorative. I certainly enjoy when Rage does that sort of stuff, but it leaves an impression. But you don't want to see it at the f- Sydney Film Festival. No, it's not I don't want to see it at the Sydney Film Festival. It's simply that sort of format elongated over the course of at 90 minutes does not work for the reason that her sort of music is deliberately to an extent inscrutable as any sort of music is but the film tries to draw these very strong parallels between her encounters with individuals and what she's doing back at the recording studio in London it may be apparent to her maybe apparent to people involved but it's too vague and ambiguous to really endear anyone who will want to get an idea of what actually motivated her or any individual song there's one great jazz sequence where I feel it may be a little bit more apparent but we'd actually and but more Along those lines, we would actually spend enough time with any individual group or any individual person to get an idea of what actually inspired her or what these communities are facing. The moments we spent in Kosovo were very interesting. However, these sequences, half of them were very naturalistic and half of them were clearly people who were asked or offered to just pose in front of the camera. And they're just put together and thrown together and it jars very strongly. Moreover, I mentioned earlier, there's a sequence that is filmed in DuPont Circle in Washington, D.C., and she mentions, it's in about two lines, one of the issues, one of the major issues in the area regarding public transport and access and interaction between Northwest DC and the other three quadrants of DC. Um, and I understand that because I live three blocks away and I lived there and I experienced that. The film deals with it momentarily. It deals with a very serious and very topical and still very relevant issue momentarily and then draws it um, in a way that we can't, isn't quite clear into the course of her music production. I feel this is something I could have watched for a very brief amount of time, but draw over the course of an hour, I feel we could have got much more of a succinct and potentially intellectual approach to um, this sort of the project, but we did not. That is a dog called Money. It is screening at uh, when did you do? It is screening tonight at Dendy Newtown, and then Monday. And on Friday. At 4 p.m. at Dendy Newtown and on Friday the 14th at 8.30 at Event George Street. The next one we are talking about is The Third Wife. Ugh. Oh, my God. Um, I mean, firstly, actually, I've noticed a trend. I I feel like a lot of the movies we're talking about just could have been shorter. Yeah. Um, Well, way, way shorter. It's the unintended... the unintended consequence, I think, of the shift towards um, make a the shift towards minimalism and um, austere and slow cinema that festival films have gone over in the past decade or so. I think um, one of the negative consequences of that is people thinking that they can stretch out something without enough um, substance to it yeah. to feature length, and no one will notice. Yeah, you get one Roma, and then you get like I don't know, hundred third wives. Um, Look, this film, yes, it's, as I'm sure every single review on it you hear or read will say, it's 
beautifully photographed. Uh, I would say to an nah, extent that's not, not that much. It's it's photo- it's beautifully photographed in inverted commas to an extent that I think is ultimately uh, really destructive to the film. Um, but, everything. But I, but I think that's the point. I think it's continuously trying to show you that how look how beautiful. That's right, and that is. becomes boring after a while because everything is just too pretty. When it's every try, it's trying the Kurosami thing, you know, with twenty four frames, it's like, oh, look, look at how picturesque everything is. This is, but without k- the k- humanism k- of k- it, Kurosami yeah. also finds poetry. This is just pretty. Like after a while, it starts to become like, okay, I get it. Like you know, the soft soft light here, and uh, you know, shallow focus here, and nature photography. The way it looks um, reminded me a lot of Hu Xiaoxian, uh, the assassin, especially, um, which. Yeah. Um, but it sort of in terms of the shallow focus and observe and um, camera kind of four by three gently like tracking through conversations and observing people at work in their rituals. But Hu Xian is a real poet of the cinema. And I, I think it shows just how much subconscious, um, almost imperceptible artistry there is to create something that's as transporting as, as what he does. Um, this is I'm talking a lot about the way it looks because I found that. Uh, aesthetic that, to be that, that's the only thing so, we're talking about it's so distracting but um this is uh you know it essentially it's it's a very very familiar story it's about it um you know the woman gets sold into servitude as a wife and the struggles she goes to you know she's pressured in certain ways to try and please her husband and it's a coming of age story and for me, that this plot is already very familiar, but this is such a straightforward but, presentation of it. The only interesting thing to me is that he uh, is that Ash Mayfair, the director, has chosen to not include um, the male characters to any significant degree. That um, the actual husband to the lead protagonist is is only seen in a few sex scenes briefly, and that that's pretty much it. That's true, but also I think I think part of it is where. The emotional heavy lifting of this narrative is supposedly that oh you know that the movie's already got all the heavy hitting notes and it's hitting those notes and it's supposedly doing you know you should now feel emotional about it. Mm. It's not actually expecting to do anything beyond actually doing much. So Did, yeah, when I was just expecting you to feel emotional because it's hitting you with those guilt tripping. Yeah. A lot of fil- festival films yeah. are doing that these days. And this is, um, it's deadeningly tasteful. You know, this is the kind of movie where sex is, you know, a, a scene, impl- a shot implying yeah. sex is going to be Arty. followed up by like yeah. scenes of water running through a cave, uh, you know? <laughs> yeah, I heard this and I just thought, the, the metaphor- no. The metaphorical. Really, uh, it's yeah, just, yeah, for yeah. the most part, it's not that terrible. It's just that the, it's so heavy-handed and it's yeah. so everything is symbolic. trying so hard and in case you didn't know it was symbolic they really show you how yeah there's a, they'll is. have a montage at the end like look at all the symbols we've had in this film um it's it's so pretty it makes it's last so one Trier tasteful seem less indulgent it's got nothing to do with last one <laughs> but um no it's yeah it, it's just Ultimately, a, a very familiar story that's just been prettied up um, in a really shallow way. It's a shallow, like a shallow person's idea of what beauty is. Not as bad as Tower of Bright film. Day. So it's no, uh, so it's it's not that bad. Yeah. It's this film is okay. 
Yeah, so we, just, we're just trying to level it up in where it slots within our... Yeah, Tower of Bright Day, we're talking... For those, okay, Tower of Bright Day is the worst film we saw at last year's festival. So we've... Uh, we're trying to, like, gauge uh, our enthusiasm for bad movies in terms of where they fit in. Actually, I think a vigilante... You should a, introduce a tower scale. <laughs> oh, yeah, um, it was a tower. Tower is still the benchmark for yeah. low end, and this I, is I not would quite s- that. I would say a vigilante was was worse actually ah. last year. I, I was going to call it a towering achievement for this. Day. A towering <laughs> yeah. achievement. Oh God! So that is that is the third wife. Yeah, it's okay. Look, it's not. We just like to complain about films. It's not that terrible. It's just yeah. I'm I sh- can't I'm sure recommend it. I'm sure there's an audience for it. Oh, there certainly is. Yeah. So yeah, I'm sure it's going to find that audience. But if you if you five, like stunning cinematography and familiar people. stories yeah. about how bad things used to be, uh, and it's politically agreeable, then the third wife. Yeah, the five people who are going to find it. Yeah, sure. So that is screening tonight, Thursday at 6.30 at the Hayden Orpheum and Friday at 11.45 a.m. at the State Theatre. The next one we're talking about, we're going to talk about in much more detail when everyone's had an opportunity to see it. I think everyone's seeing it either tonight or tomorrow night, which is Divine Love, the new film from Neon Ball director Gabriel Mascaro. It- I'm really looking forward to this one. The Neon Ball was actually my favorite film of 2016 when it played. So I'm also starting yeah, the, the night with this one, so opening night. Yeah, see you there, Virat. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm doing Ghost Town Anthology, so I started to catch this one uh, reviewed a little bit earlier. It is the new film from the On Ball director, Gabriel Mascaro. It is about a group called Divine Amor, Divine Amor, which is a evangelical group in Brazil which encourages group sex therapy sessions. So you want to get yourself closer with your partner and with God. It is set in the near futurist sci-fi of Brazil where everything is slightly exaggerated um, in quite an interesting way. Certainly there, there are great touches like the drive-through chapel where you can get a few moments with a priest just like going through a Macca's. Um, I quite like this. The sex scenes, I haven't seen the on board, but I understand it had an outstanding sex scene, were very well filmed. They were filmed at a remove. At the same time, they were conversely intimate while being beautifully lit and neon-drenched. I love the concept of this film and some of the world-building. However, the plot itself, and it's a very apparent parable, becomes apparent too later, too late in proceedings to us for us or the characters to really engage with it. Uh, there was also quite some quite frustrating narration, which didn't need to be in the film at all. It's kind of like a Blade Runner situation where you could just as well have cut it. Um, and it is actually comparable in some respects, stylistically, to the first Blade Runner film. That is Divino, Divine Love. We will be talking about that more soon. That is screening tonight and then on Thursday the 13th at Event Cinema's George Street. Next one we're talking about. Now, Chris and I did a four-film marathon as, as previews. I did five films that day. This was the best one. This is the best of Dorian B. It is a Belgian film by director Anke Blonde, starring newcomer Kim Schnauert. I need to stress that this is her first on-screen filmic role. Uh, it's rare you see a newcomer of this range and talent. She's simply outstanding. She carried the whole film, or, or, or quite a lot of the film, I should say, Um, A lot of it is up to the direction and screenwriting. It is about Dorian, who, in the course of a very short period of time, everything in her life unravels. Her veterinary practice, her relationship with her partner worsens, her parents are looking at separating, and she receives some very bad news about her health. This may seem like a drama, and it could very well have been a drama, um, but given the direction the main actress went with, it is more of a comedy and has a great cathartic element to it, works very well with elements of dark humor. And moreover, I think we can underline just how strong Schnauert's performance was. 
I really want to see more from this actress. I'm sure we will, and I hope we will in the years to come. What I really admired about this film is how it takes a premise that could easily fall into just sniping at people and kind of a comic cruelty and raising up our protagonist as being a perfect human in opposition to all of the fools surrounding her. To an extent, um, one day last year felt a little bit like that. But um, the the humor of this uh, film saves it from going in such a kind of didactic direction. And it manages also within the... Um, it has a, an element of quirk to some of the premises, but um, it finds space to have empathy for pretty much everyone in the cast. No one um, has their humanity reduced in order to prop up the protagonist. And as you said, her performance is fantastic. She is funny without ever overplaying it. She's completely believable. She does a lot of great eye acting, actually. And she's relatable. Yeah, There's... very, very. This is a, a film about normal everyday issues, and I think almost everyone would find it relatable. There's a couple of... I hope not Jennifer Lawrence level relatable, because that's an insult. Mm. I quite like Jennifer Lawrence, but she's nothing uh, like Jennifer Lawrence's performer. I will watch it then. It's really, it's really about how just routines trap people and um, the, the need to find happiness. No, I, I like this idea of inverting a dramatic premise into a comedy, which is fascinating. Yeah, it's, it's, it's quite well done. And I'm struggling to find good films. At it's, the festival it, this it's, year. it's not... Ex- well, yeah, this is one of the better films. And it's not, um, it's not a kind of laugh-out-loud comedy. It's, it's more kind of low-key in a way so that it works with great. this. Which is great. Anything with humor at, at the festival circuit the seems humor, to be like, you know... Yeah, the humor is well-played. It, it, it works well. For the, it, it was appropriately pitched for the subject matter, I think. Um, two points, or three points, finally, to make about this film. It is a film about resilience, and that is and going through everyday stuff that becomes the extreme of everyday stuff. Yeah. And that is what she does really, really well as a performer. Um, my, two of my more favorite things about this, there's a recurring Taekwondo element to it. There are scenes that could have been played via dialogue, very obvious but then less consequential dialogue. However, they are played out via Taekwondo sequences that are nearly wordless. Yeah, fantastic. And it's so well done. It's such a different change. And the actress, to her great credit, convincingly, does convincingly pull off these moments. Yeah. She's obviously very well trained in Taekwondo. The other element I really enjoyed was there is a recurring vignette of quite intimate and invasive medical procedures as regards both animals and humans. Certainly, um, she's a veterinarian, so we're exposed to quite a lot of her practice and also some of the medical tests that... Dorian undergoes, which can be and are quite confronting both for, for all the procedures we see. This is an unusual choice for a comedy, but I really liked it and that it created the kind of universal level playing field for everyone involved. It, the whole film was about how there is a very universal experience and even if you don't experience some of what this character has gone through, certainly some will in the life, certainly most will not over the course of a very short period, but it can happen. There's nothing wrong with seeking outlets in the strange and unusual and won't be uncommon, but nevertheless, if it is cathartic and something that is needed, then that's good. Do it. Mm. And also, there's a great sequence where an animal escapes in a very undesirable way, and it's absolute comedy gold. It's yeah. This film does a, a good um, job of showing how people can be taken for granted and how people can take aspects of their lives for granted. It's really just about a few destabilizing events forcing somebody to reevaluate things and you know not to be a slave to routine 
and to seek support when you yeah need. that's right it's, it, it is a very humane film ultimately yes yeah. so that is the best of Dorian B do do seek it out it's a good one and it's playing as part of the European Voices of Women in Film strand and the director Anke Blonde is coming out to Australia she'll be here shortly that is playing what are the dates now um, it is playing on Friday at 6pm at Den Keys and on Tuesday at 6pm also at Den Keys next film we are talking about is The Miracle of the Little Prince Chris and I caught it it is playing tomorrow night at the State Theatre um, if you have a bookshelf you probably have read The Little Prince or have a copy it is the novel novel novella by uh, what's his name uh, uh, Antoine Gaspari, uh, Antoine Saint Exupéry, and this film follows the impact of the novel across four regions. It's apparently been translated to 375 languages. It covers four, though: the Berber community in Morocco, the Sami community um, in this case in northern Finland. You have, sorry, in northern it was it was in Finland. Yes, you oh, have yeah. the um, Tibetan exiles, and you have in El Salvador a community who speak an Aztec language. And we follow how this book has impacted members of those communities. I liked it. The first and foremost about this film, it is stunningly shot. It's one of the best shot films I've seen all year. It is the best shot film I've seen as part of this festival so far. Whether it be on the interviews or just on the landscapes, it's great. And it's a travelogue. It's this travelogue film. It, it has a much better travelogue photography than The Wedding Guest. Um, but... I found this to be boring. Yeah, okay, I, I gotta say, this is directed at this is in the kids program. I don't think kids are going to enjoy going this. To, this and, is and like it's dry for the wrong reasons. You. It's not. It's it, It's, <laughs> it's not that this. it's intellectual. It's that it's not so engaging. Like, and also, we don't know who. There's no I, context for who these people we're talking to are. Are they leaders in their communities? Are they just individuals? We have to know to understand where I, they're coming. Are they teachers? Who are they? I felt something about the way this is made holds you at a remove because you're looking at these incredible. Uh, landscapes snow swept desolate or you know big wide desert plains and then we've got a, a person's you know a character coming up and saying a few words about the little prince and then telling some stories about their life and then it's on to the next story um there's nothing really holding it together not just in terms of um the connection to like a th- we're pursuing a theme about the, the novel the little prince but also just in terms of maintaining audience interest there isn't really any hook you know some and some of these stories are much more interesting than others oh no the we spend five minutes learning about a very confronting experience from the sammy lady who apparently is coming to australia as a guest of the festival which is great Mm. and these stories are captivating they're involving however it takes a long time to draw what can often be a quite tangential link with the through line of this narrative and it would have been just as interesting we didn't focus on little prince and just spoke on what was relevant to a number of these stories in how languages change and how in some cases languages suppressed i was just in northern finland and sweden i met members of the youth members of the Sami parliament, and they told her about this issue directly. It's a very serious issue. I would like to have explored this in a bit more detail. However, the focus on the Little Prince, where there isn't actually much discussion about the attributes of the novel itself, no. isn't as nearly as endearing as what we learn about these communities and the challenges they face in terms of poverty or access to wider networks, education or translation. But it's all shelved aside for what is a quite shallow focus on this novel and not as relevant to these communities. I mean... I think this film needed a little bit more editorializing. 
as it is, the novel, as you say, is just the entry point. Like, isn't it incredible that this novel has been translated into... 375 languages, great. Yeah, and into, you know, really remote parts of the world have their own translated version of the book. That is interesting, but it's not used to make a, a broader point about the book or really a broader point about language or about the way that culture transfers it, beyond the most surface-level observations. Um, like, this is what the book means to me. But um, in a way, even the way it's photographed with these huge desolate landscapes, it feels like it's holding you at a remove. It's for what for a film that's really about a few people talking to you to the camera and telling their personal stories. It's not a very inviting film. And no, I think we need to we need a bit more a direct, deliberate intellectual approach. Yeah. And also, it's a strange thing. It's a film about a book that I have it on my bookshelf. It didn't encourage me to go pick it up and have a look. And that's what it should do. It's got it's got very little to do with the Little Prince. No, so that is the little the miracle of the Little Prince. It is screening on ch- tomorrow night, sorry, tomorrow morning at ten a.m. at the State Theatre, and Saturday the eighth at four p.m. at Dendi Newtown. The next film we are talking about is yeah, The Brink. We are talking about The Brink. Uh, a lot of the things, actually, just uh, listening to your conversations, a broader kind of thematic thing that popped out to me was uh, a lot of the f- festival movies this year seem to be really, you know, they're pretty, they're well shot, you know, but they've kind of missed out on a very important element of filmmaking, which is the humanity of it. What is the story you're telling and what is the human connect of it? And what popped out to me was we're missing some Iranian films. And, you know, I feel, and, you know, it seems like a very cinephile thing to say that, you know, Iranian filmmakers do this. And, really uh, well. and you're mentioning Iran because Steve Bannon hates nothing more than Iran. There is actually one really interesting looking yeah. Iraqi film, Cold Sweat, about the lady who's not allowed to compete in the cold, cold, sport. Cold, cold Sweat. sweat cold Sweat. But yeah. you know, yeah. Exactly. Uh, but uh, just generally, because I feel like every year at the festival, we usually do have quite a strong presence of Iranian cinema and they almost always seem to be the best uh, and you know uh, Chris and I we had three faces as our top pick last year and it just happens to be the case that Iranians can't make a bad movie and the thing is that's not just because they're well shot but they seem to be really good stories and I feel that's what's missing this year anyway that's <laughs> what I, what the I love, point. just aside that about Iranian cinema what I love about it, and that's what I love about the a lot of the American cinema of the 40s through 60s is that there are so many restrictions in the content you are either implicitly or explicitly allowed to show and therefore we have to find increasingly creative ways of working around that we certainly saw that with Three Faces we saw that with A Separation and Tehran Taxi is a famous example. And yeah, we I, w- I would like to... Um, that's still great. Iranian films last year. Alas, not this year. Interesting. Maybe Cold Sweat is good, I know, but it's, it's just the one Iranian in, film in, this year. Interesting that you bring up restrictions and working within restrictions, because that brings me back to the brink, because you're dealing with a hostile interview subject, Steve Bannon. He clearly has his own agenda that he wants to push, and he wants to come across a certain way to this filmmaker. And there's a resilience, a game of tug and war happening throughout the film as to what the filmmaker is trying to get out of Steve Bannon and what Steve Bannon is trying to project himself as in the movie. And what is the most interesting thing about this film is this kind of tension that comes about because of this uh, play. I'm really interested... I'm actually more proud of myself that I managed to make that segue because in my head it wasn't going properly, but then it did. So, uh, you know, interesting. Say where in the night. I, I, was, I was at the brink myself. I was like, okay, I'm going to fall, but I didn't. But anyway, uh, Steve Bannon, because look, 
I will admit, I went predetermined to say that I you know, was not going to like the movie, and I was pleasantly surprised by what I got out of this movie. The way the filmmakers able to tap into something real about Steve Bannon, despite his attempts to not show anything real about him, mm. is fascinating. Because, you know, it, it's, it's actually like you, you are playing a game of chess, and the, your subject is not cooperating, and then how do you still find something humane in that dynamic and not get caught up in this ego war that he wants you to play? It's, it's, it's a fascinating character study of Steve Bannon because in not telling anything about himself and not trying to reveal things about himself, he's revealing more things than he would like. So it's an interesting character study in that sense. It's an anti-narrative narrative movie. And just how Breitbart as an organization is, you know, and how it is, like this inner workings of that is, is a fascinating, it's, yeah, it, it's it's quite a personally revealing film than I realized it would be. And much more sensitive, uh, impersonal, personally impersonal one. I think you saw me on it because I looked at this and said, I don't want to see a film about Steve Bannon. And same, I, same. But, I, I didn't want to do okay, it. Okay, um, you have saw me on it. Uh, so that was The Brink, the film about the guy who owns a stake in Seinfeld. Look it up. And that is playing on Saturday the 8th um, from 12.45 p.m. at Den- Opera Keys and Sunday at 8.45 p.m. also at Den Opera Keys. The next film we're talking about is One Child Nation. Uh, yeah, we, 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 I, can, I can just talk uh, briefly about it because, once again, the doco seemed to be really strong this year. I think this, we're going to catch up with this one a bit later and probably yes, yeah. cover it a so bit more. I, I think it, it's one that people should see. It is a fascinating insight, uh, not just in China, in a time period that you know a lot of people know about but still don't know about, but also the very human psychological impact on a generation that is believed, you know, and what it does to the people living in that and then reclaiming their history and the kind of uh, almost guerrilla tactics that you employ trying to rediscover your roots in that kind of scenario. So it's uh, it's it's almost, uh, it's a very interesting story. It's, it's, it's something which, uh, you know, it's a very real part of history and how that makes it uh, part of it. Once again, the the length of this is just right, which I can't say for a lot of films this year. Either they're too long or too short. This seems to be just the perfect length. So if that doesn't get you to, you know, go and see this movie, uh, I don't know what will, because this seems to be quite a rare occurrence. So that is One Child Nation. It is screening Friday night at one forty. Sorry, Friday afternoon at one forty-five p.m. at the State Theatre, and Sunday at four thirty p.m. at Events in Miss George Street. And then the new Wiseman documentary, Monrovia, Indiana. Yeah, the Monrovia, Indiana. It is uh, my pick of the festival so far. Uh, it's a fascinating. Uh, once again. Uh, what Glenn was referring to in terms of beautifully shot films, this is the best shot film, according to me. But once again, what Weissman gets out of his characters, which not a lot of filmmakers seem to do, it's not about just making the frame look pretty. He's able to tell a very human story about uh, you know what his characters are going to go. I'm sure a lot of people are going to watch it, so you know I'll wait for you guys to watch it and catch up with it. But you know this is going to be fun. We will, and that is Saturday the eighth at ten a.m. at Den the Opera Keys, and Saturday the fifteenth at twelve p.m. also at Den the Opera Keys. So just Saturday afternoon. At- Saturday afternoon to Dendy Opkeys. Next one we're talking about is When Tomatoes Met Wagner. Chris. Yeah, this one's screening on Friday and Saturday, coming up really and soon. And Sunday. Fri- oh, okay. Sunday morning. Interesting. Um, yeah, this is, this is a really, really warm film. It's following a little village in Greece uh, uh, which has aged a lot 
and it's basically about having you get to know the people involved in an operation of growing and packaging and exporting canned tomato products. And the title uh, is taken from a quirk of the townspeople in the film, which is playing classical music to their tomatoes in order to spur their growth. Um, Reading the description, I wondered if that was going to be, you know, the quirky angle of the film, but it's, it's barely commented upon. It's just simply presented. This is what they do, you know, moving on. Um, You get to know some of the people in this film really well. Uh, There's a lot of attention to their humanity. Um, And what I really like about this film is that in an excursion outside of their hometown um, to Belgium later in the film, it puts what they're doing economically into a broader context. Um, I like how this is showing you a micro and a macro level of this operation. And I like that it... it, um, recognizes some of the potential darkness in this narrative that the town is aging that there's the question of how long this can even be kept up and how long this is sustainable um but at the same time it it keeps an optimistic outlook it's really a film about um the bonds of community and the value of work i think above all what i love about this film is it takes a very absurd premise uh, what seems on paper to be quite laugh out loud funny and then just doesn't address it like, you know, th- this is the least uh, interesting part about the movie. The premise, which seems to be on paper the most interesting part about the film, is the least interesting part about the movie. If that doesn't make you want to go and watch the movie and seek it out, I don't know what will, because, you know, what on paper... So it completely inverts your expectations that way, because you go in expecting a very different kind of film, and you're thinking, you know, it's going to be an absurd film with, you know, a very out-there premise, but that's not even the film. So the film is something else entirely, so I was pleasantly surprised. And once again, the perfect length. Um, it it is the yeah, it's short, which uh, is as it should be. Honestly, it, it it's pretty brisk and to the point. Um, I like how it shows the balance between maintaining traditions and the need to economically adapt. And uh, yeah, it's very timely in a lot of ways. Yeah, there's so many uh, other kind of very timely strands that come out of the film, which you don't expect. And I think that's it's one of the most surprising elements of the film and how it's able to comment on so many things through Tomatoes and Wagner. <laughs> so that was when Wagner met Tomatoes or when Tomatoes said, fuck that. It seems they're very interrelated. Very, yeah, it's very good. It's also the uh, director, Maria Economo, will be at the festival. It's another film in the uh, Europe Voices of Women in Film section. So that is screening on Friday at 10 a.m. at the State Theatre, Saturday at 2.05 p.m. Strange Time at Denjobra Keys, and Sunday at 10.15 a.m. at Denjobra Keys. The last film we're discussing, and it is the only film on the Freak Me Out strand we are discussing tonight, which is programmed by Richard Kupias, which is Here Comes Hell. It is filmed in black and white. It is the classic schlocky horror. It's about two people meet on the train, going to something called Ichabod's house, going to a seance and staying at a place where there's no utilities or real access to essential services late one night with a bunch of people they don't know. It's billed as Downton Abbey meets, well, any slasher film. It's not really Downton Abbey, yes. There are a group of people who are quite snobbish, a group of people who aren't as much. And to the film's credit, the monster hellmouth Berkhamov of it goes in an actually surprising direction. Having said that, it's leans both on comedy and horror, more comedy than horror, but it is at no point scary, even though I think it's sparing moments it is intendedly trying to be so. 
it's more of a parody pastiche of what horror films are. There are some very funny moments, the discharge of a firearm and the disdain a couple of characters show for proceedings. And when the char- some of the actors who lead into the aesthetic are allowed to be extremely dry, it works. Other times, the actors who either are particularly good or take it too seriously, it does not work. Uh, while, yes, it is a parody, it is not a Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein-level parody in the sense that there are things that are very inconsistent with how anyone would act in real life, which should not be pursued. That is not how you hold a gun. It is not how you hold a sword. And no, you cannot hold a candle dripping with burning wax under any circumstances. That should be, if it, it could have been played as a gag. It wasn't played as a gag. The main actress, um, I'll just bring up her name, uh, Margaret Clooney, was quite good. Again, she leads into the disdainful side of things, which was certainly how the audience were invited to see it. Um, I should note it opens with a character in a suit, Rocky Horror style saying, if you're out of the faint of heart, you should leave. It's the sort of instruction that will encourage absolutely no one to see this film, but I think oversells the film quite a bit. It is entertaining, if in stretches, quite underwhelming, that there is one excellent sequence towards the end with beautiful cinematography, a la um, what is, I think, the use of several soap machines to create an excellent haze in a basement. And the actors are good when they're allowed to overact as much as they can and occasionally do. I wish they'd done that a little more. That is Here Comes Hell. It is screening as part of the Freak Me Out strand at the City Film Festival on Saturday the 8th at 9pm at Event Cinemas George Street and the fo- and this following Tuesday 8.30pm at Dendy Newtown. So those are our reviews for the coming few days. We'll be back on Sunday at midday with the Film and Revolt crew and Stephen Hill from 2SCR talking about some of the stuff I've seen, some of the stuff we will see in the next few days. We'll be talking painting Glory, the new Almodovar. We'll be talking The Souvenir, the new Tilda Swinton film. We'll be talking Ghost Town Anthology. Oh, God, there's a lot that's coming up in the next there's little too bit. There's too many movies. There's, there's never too many movies. There, there are, and you're going to find that limit, whether you like it or not. That's what Sydney Film Festival does to us. The, what is it? The, what the, the back say? The marathon... Yeah, oh yeah, the, the best. Mar- you do have to train for it. Yeah. You do have yeah, to train it for it. Yeah, it's the greatest marathon. You don't have to train for. But I'll have you know that watching fifteen films in two days is quite difficult. Yeah, that's we've done, uh, it. We've done it. We all done. We've all done it. I've never watched fifteen films in two days. I've watched eight. I watched nine films in one day once. Wow. Um, fun. It was the entire nine. Alien Predator. Oh god! Series. Yeah. Okay, so, one yeah. day. Now I've done. I've done nine in two days, which I think is reasonable and insane. I, I did eight in one day, and that was actually a pretty good selection. And there were ones I were like. Did you manage to distinguish any movie from another? Um, Silver Streak was very different from um, Picnic, which was very different from Casablanca, which was very I, different. I know they they are different now, but but they did they seem different when you stepped out of your I don't know aloof darkness. D- d- different enough. Different enough. Okay. Um, but we don't encourage you to watch that many films at a time unless it's... Actually, no, do it. Why not? Maybe the one opportunity that you have to... Uh, actually, don't. whatever you do, if you do program four films in a day, don't program four at the State Theatre or one location. It just becomes hazy and you just don't want to sit in the same seats over and over again. Mix it up. Go to George Street. Go to the Orpheum. Go to the Ritz. Go to go to Kizula. Like anyway, look. If anybody can do that, uh, don't go to Dendy Opera Keys. That is what? my only only thing. No, it's vivid. I was there last night. It's beautiful. You can walk through the vivid crowds. Exactly. There's can you can you walk vivid through the crowds? Vivid are going crowds. to be really hard to get through. I I, I I have found I found that to be you know a personal uh, you know travesty, but I wouldn't you know if other people can do it and they can, they're brave enough to brave it, crouching dragon hidden. St- Raging Tiger, Hidden Dragon style, then yeah, they can, but uh, I can't, I can't. Another segue, I'm not quite sure what that means. It's okay, Angley, you know, we just had the Neon God series, as I was just thinking, back to fonder times. Anyway. 
So tune in to a show at midday on Sunday. Uh, subscribe to the podcast. Or, sorry, tell people to subscribe to the podcast. You're already listening to the podcast. What am I saying? Um, <laughs> keep, keep an eye out on for the interviews we're doing with directors and filmmakers. And just, yeah, we're looking forward to bringing you so much coverage. It's one of the funnest times of year. There are so many films, some great, some terrible, some in between, some an absolute curiosity. And we just love covering them and love debating them. And we're going to have so many people on the show. And, oh, it's going to be a good couple of weeks. Honestly, I mean, look... This may seem like like we hate movies, but actually we love them. So you know, you know, ta da! You know that sort of thing. But it's it's all fun. You know, yeah. we all can't look, can't wait, can't wait. So have a wonderful night. Enjoy more movies, more movies than you ever watched regularly, than ever before. Marathon of movies. If you want an actual marathon, do the All Night Sin Eleven. The yeah, John yeah. Waters Razor Head in uh, the realm of the senses, which is uh, one of my still one of my absolute favorite movies. And you know, you should, that's the only t- way you can watch it now at the Sydney Film Fest. So you can should do it. You know, brave it if you and set and tango. So do both. Just do it. Get the flexi pass. Have a good night. Enjoy movies. Bye bye. Bye. Bye.